Scripture reading this morning is going to be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 17, I'll read the first verse and ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Acts 16, I'm sorry, Acts 17, beginning with verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Our Father and our God, we ask for your blessing over these next few moments as we seek to learn and grow from this study of Scripture. Pray that each one of us would have hearts that would be receptive to the Word of God today, that our ears would be open, and that we would seek to apply what it is that the Spirit of God has for us to each one of our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we're beginning a new chapter in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul is continuing his second missionary journey. Uh, He and his companions, as we've seen in the last few weeks, had spent some time in the city of uh, Philippi there in Macedonia. And after being imprisoned and then released eventually, now they're headed to the next city where they're going to go and preach the gospel uh, in in Macedonia, what is modern-day Greece. Uh, You may have noticed as we read that section that once again, this is in the third person. Uh, meaning that Luke is no longer with them. Uh, he left. He was apparently left in Philippi. Let me show you this, uh, starting back in Acts 16, so you can kind of see uh, what I'm talking about here. Verse 11 of chapter 16, Luke writes, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. 
uh, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So Luke uh, is with Paul and Silas and Timothy at this point as they're going into the city of Philippi. Uh, He goes in there with them, he stays there with them, but he doesn't leave with them. At the end of chapter 16, Luke goes from writing what we did to writing about what they did, indicating that he had stayed behind to help with this new church in Philippi. Uh, Verse 40 says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So there he's saying that they had left him there. Uh, In chapter 20 of Acts, Paul's going to return back to the city of Philippi, and Luke will be picked up at that point, and again, the pronouns shift And he goes back to talking about we and us. So he rejoins them uh, in chapter 20. Uh, But for now, Luke stays behind in Philippi, presumably to help establish this new church, uh, new Christians there that needed to learn and grow. And so Luke was left there to help with that. Today, we're going to track with the Apostle Paul to two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And we'll see two very different responses uh, in these cities, which I think will be very instructive for us. We're going to walk through the text like we normally do, and then at the end, we're going to go back and focus in on one key principle uh, down a little bit later in the the passage. So you're basically going to get two sermons uh, for the price of one today. I hope you appreciate that discount. Uh, Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Uh, So just so you can see this here on the map, they head from Philippi, which is Uh, right up here. So this is where they were the last few weeks. They head down to Thessalonica, then they're going to go to Berea next. Uh, Here in Thessalonica, Paul's approach shifts from what we saw in Philippi, because there's a synagogue here. Uh, In Philippi, you remember, he goes into the city, there apparently wasn't a synagogue, and so he instead, he kind of has to improvise and figure out a new way that he's going to reach people, because his normal practice uh, was to go from town to town, go into the synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews there, and try to get a church started that way. Uh, Philippi didn't have a synagogue, so he found a place of prayer by the river uh, where the Jewish ladies would meet every Sabbath day, and he gave the gospel to them there. Uh, then he ends up being thrown in prison, and he reaches the jailer, and so kind of a, uh, an innovative way, if you, if you think about it, the way that he reached some people there in Philippi. Here in Thessalonica, we're back to his usual routine of going into the city, finding a synagogue, preaching the gospel to the Jews there on the Sabbath days. And that's exactly what he does in verse 2. It says that Paul went in, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So for three weeks, uh, every Sabbath, Paul went to this synagogue and tried to persuade the Jews there that Jesus was their promised Messiah. Uh, He reasoned with them from the scriptures about this. The Greek Greek word there for reasoned is dialegomai, uh, from which we get dialogue. Uh, So they were having a conversation, a back and forth, a question and answer time. Uh, This is very similar to what we do on Wednesday nights. If you come here for Wednesday night Bible study, uh, we sit downstairs and as a group, we discuss scripture. And so this is what Paul was doing. Paul goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, three weeks in a row, and he is discussing, having a conversation with them, explaining, and it says proving from the scriptures, uh, from their Old Testament, that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, Now, the term Christ or Messiah, 
That may be kind of an unfamiliar term to, to most of us. It simply means anointed one. And in the context of the Bible, I think the best way to understand that is to think just the word king. Okay, when you hear Messiah or Christ, think king. That's essentially what it would be communicating to them. Uh, the Christ, the Messiah, was a promised king to Israel who was to come and rescue them from their enemies and establish his throne and rule with justice. Uh, prophets had been writing for centuries about this coming king. And Paul is saying to these Jews that Jesus is him. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king that you all have been waiting for for centuries. And Paul wasn't just making this claim. He was proving it from their Old Testament scriptures. He was showing them from their Bible that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these prophecies about a Messiah and a coming king uh, to Israel. I don't know exactly which prophecies Paul used to prove this, but there's over 200 uh, prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus has already fulfilled. There's more, of course, that he's going to fulfill in the future. But here are just a handful of passages that will give you an idea of the kind of thing Paul would have been showing to them. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this promised king, according to the prophet Jeremiah, was to be a descendant of King David, which Jesus, of course, was. That's one reason that Luke and Matthew both begin with the genealogy of Jesus. Luke is a couple of chapters in. But they both, right at the beginning of their book, have a genealogy tracing the lineage of Jesus back to King David to show that he uh, he fulfills that prophecy, that he is a descendant of David. The prophet Micah wrote about this coming king in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this ruler, this king, would be born in the city of Bethlehem, a little town outside of Jerusalem, uh, which we know again from the Gospels that Jesus was born there. The prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would be born in the town of Bethlehem. And Isaiah says he would be born of a virgin, uh, just as we know that Jesus was. Later in Isaiah's prophecy, he writes about the Messiah, that he would be God in human form, that his identity as God would be revealed through the working of miracles. He says in chapter 35, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So those are miracles that Jesus performed throughout his time on earth that are further fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Uh, The prophet Zechariah predicted that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that that money would eventually be used to purchase the field of a potter. Talk about a random prophecy. Uh, But even minute uh, details like that in the life of Jesus were predicted centuries before he was even born. 
Uh, all of this, by the way, is fulfilled by Judas Iscariot. We'll read this in Zechariah. His prophecy here, it says, uh, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And if you were a Jew living before Jesus, uh, verse 13 would be very confusing if you think about it. He's saying, give this, these 30 pieces of silver, throw them in the house of the Lord to the potter. Uh, is there a potter in the house of the Lord? Is there someone making clay pots and, and uh, forming things in the middle of the temple? That's kind of weird. Uh, but what happened is Judas Iscariot decided after he had betrayed Jesus and been given 30 pieces of silver... Uh, he, he changed his mind. He felt bad about it. He brought the money back to the temple uh, and he throws it on the floor of the temple to the religious leaders. The religious leaders who had paid Judas to do this uh, said that it's not lawful for us to put this in the treasury. We can't put this in, in our, uh, our, our, our temple savings account because this is blood money. It's corrupted. Uh, so they took the money and bought a field that belonged to a potter. And so Judas threw the money on the floor of the house of the Lord, and eventually it ended up going to the potter when the religious leaders purchased the field from that. You can read all of that in Matthew 27. All of these prophecies of the Messiah, even uh, events surrounding his life, were fulfilled in Jesus. And so Paul is walking through these prophecies, as I said, over 200 uh, prophecies, specific prophecies of the Old Testament, are fulfilled in Jesus. What are the odds that one person could fulfill all of these prophecies? Uh, the short answer is it's just impossible. Apart from uh, God's intervention, nothing like this could ever have happened by chance. A statistician a few years ago published a book in which he did the math of uh, what the odds would be that one person could fulfill just 48 of the prophecies of the Messiah. And he demonstrated in that research that has been independently analyzed and confirmed that the statistical probability would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, in case you can't picture how big of a number that is, uh, it's a 1 with 157 zeros after it. Uh, that may not be too helpful either because most of us, after about eight zeros, we get lost. We can't even imagine that. Uh, here's another way to picture it provided by this statistician. He said, it would, be, it would be like if a person was dropped in the middle of the state of Texas, uh, wading waist deep in silver dollars that were spread out and mixed up all over the entire state of Texas, and one of those coins was marked. Now blindfold the guy and have him pick up one coin. Okay, what are the odds that he would pick up the selected coin, the marked one? Uh, that's the odds that one person could fulfill 48 of these prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled over 200. And so with all of this evidence, Paul is able to make quite a convincing case uh, that Jesus was, in fact, their promised king. And he did all of this in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them. He explained to the Jews from their Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. He was the king that they had been waiting for. Now, there's just one problem. Jesus died, and this was always the hang-up for the Jews. They could not understand how Jesus of Nazareth could be the promised king, the Messiah, if he died before he could establish his kingdom. Now, the Messiah is supposed to reign and to establish justice and peace across the world. 
How can you say that this dead guy was him? And so Paul had to work especially hard to convince them of that point in particular, uh, that they had misunderstood the nature of the Messiah's kingdom, that he was supposed to die and rise again and then rule from heaven over his people. Uh, Back to our text in verse 2, we read, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he was particularly having to convince them from their Old Testament that the Christ had to suffer that he had to die on a cross bearing our sins, and that he had to rise again from the dead, that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in in those acts as well, Uh, that that was how he would establish his kingdom. This was all part of the plan. Uh, Here are just a couple of texts from the Old Testament that clearly demonstrate this. Again, I don't know uh, what passages Paul went to, uh, but if I was Paul, I would have gone to at least these two. Psalm 22, this is where Uh, Jesus actually quotes this passage as he's on the cross. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, those are the words of Christ uh, on the cross. As you keep reading in Psalm 22, you'll find these descriptions of Jesus as he's dying on the cross. For example, in verse 7, it predicts how those watching him will mock him. It says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Uh, Verse 14 and following give us a visual uh, prediction of Christ's death on the cross. It says, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then even verse 18 predicts that the soldiers uh, who, who were in charge of crucifying Christ were going to cast lots in order to decide who would get his clothes. Uh, even that little detail is predicted centuries before Christ. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So there's a crystal clear prophecy that the Messiah was going to suffer and die in this gruesome way. Uh, Perhaps even clearer is Isaiah 53, which says of of the Christ, uh, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and accounted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth." By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so this is what Paul did. For three weeks, he walked them through passages like that from their Old Testament, prophecies written hundreds of years before Jesus. And he demonstrated how Christ fulfilled every one of them, how he died on the cross bearing our sins. And he proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so they should submit their lives to his reign in their, over them, and they should become Christians. And some of them did. Verse 4 says of our text, some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So some of the Jews were convinced by Paul's preaching and teaching, uh, the conversations that they had as he was proving from their scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Some were persuaded, and they became Christians. Uh, many of the Greeks were also converted, and this ends up causing a problem for the Apostle Paul. Because the Jewish people really got agitated about the fact that Gentiles are being saved, and they were joining with some of the Jews who were also believing in Christ. Uh, this drove the unbelieving Jewish leaders absolutely crazy. Uh, verse 5 tells us, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Uh, Jason was apparently one of the converts here in Thessalonica who had provided a lodging for Paul and Silas, much like Lydia did uh, back in Philippi. And so it seems that they were staying at Jason's house, and so this mob comes uh, and, and tries to beat down the door and break open the windows, do whatever, uh, to try to get these guys. They go inside and they find that they're not there. Uh, Jason apparently is there by himself, maybe with a few others. But Paul and Silas, the people they're really after, are not there. Verse 6 says, When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So once again, uh, Paul is being accused of instructing people to be disloyal to Caesar uh, because he is preaching that Jesus is king. And so the city authorities are very concerned when they hear this because if somebody tries to lead a rebellion against Rome, which happened periodically throughout this time in history, uh, the Roman Empire would send in soldiers and just squash it immediately. People would be killed. Uh, they would make an example out of them. And so any sort of accusation that there was a revolution stirring among the people, this got the attention of the leaders of the city because they wanted to keep the peace and not have any problems with Rome. And so verse 8 says that when the people and the city authorities, uh, they were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Uh, so they couldn't find Paul or Silas or Timothy, the main guys that they were looking for. Uh, only Jason, whose house they were staying at, and a few other converts uh, who were there. Eventually, they let them go, and they were able to get word to Paul and Silas and basically warn them, uh, hey, you guys better get out of town. <laughs> There's some, some angry people that are looking for you. And so verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now that is really something. Uh, Paul and Silas barely escaped with their lives uh, from Thessalonica because the Jews had stirred up this mob. And so Paul sneaks away by night, goes to the next city over, Berea, and goes right into the synagogue there and does the exact same thing. Uh, He just could not be stopped uh, from preaching the gospel. He didn't lay low for a while and keep quiet. He didn't try a different approach instead of going to the Jews first. Uh, No, Paul did the exact same thing in Berea that he had done in Thessalonica. Only this time there was a much better response uh, from the Jewish people here in Berea. Verse 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans were much more open to Paul's preaching. They received the word, uh, meaning they received the message that Paul was preaching about Jesus. They were eager. They were listening to what he was saying. And then they tested it against scripture to see if it was true. And as a result, verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed. So they were convinced that what he was saying was in fact the truth with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So things went much better in the city of Berea. People were being saved. Uh, Everything was smooth sailing until it wasn't. Uh, Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So the Thessalonians Uh, The Thessalonians, uh, the Jews that were living there, were so upset with Paul, they followed him to the next town and decided, we're going to cause a problem for you here too. And so they they get a mob uh, forming there in Berea. And so once again, uh, Paul is sent away to another city, uh, the city of Athens. Verse 14 explains, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So Luke is back in Philippi. Uh, Silas and Timothy are in Berea, and Paul heads on to the next place. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next week with Paul in Athens. We're going to see how he preaches uh, Christ there in the city of Athens. Well, I said earlier you're going to get two sermons in one today. Uh, That's the end of Sermon 1 Here is Sermon 2. This one is shorter, by the way, in case you're keeping track. Uh, But we're going to focus on one aspect of the text, namely the two responses of Thessalonica and Berea. And this may be uh, the most important lesson you ever learn in your Christian life. If you really get this, it will help you grow in your faith, in your understanding of God and his word. It will help you in practical ways, like when you move to a new area, you're looking for a church, Uh, If I walk out here today, get hit by a bus, and you're looking for a new pastor, uh, this principle is the difference between those who grow strong and mature in their understanding and those who are misled into false teaching. Here is my uh, sermon title for this second sermon, phrased in three different ways. You can pick whichever one makes the most sense to you. First, how to be teachable without being gullible. Uh, Second, this is my favorite, being open-minded without being empty-headed. Or number three, open to correction, but not prone to misdirection. The Jews in Thessalonica were close-minded. They were unteachable, not open to correction. 
They heard Paul's preaching and they rejected it. Not because Paul's arguments were weak or because he wasn't doing a good job of proving that Jesus was the Christ. No, they rejected him because of their own jealousy, their pride. It didn't matter how strong Paul's arguments were because they were just unwilling to hear it. A lot of Christians are just like that. Absolutely closed-minded, unteachable, not open to correction. Many Christians have the attitude of, I believe what I believe, and I'm not changing what I believe about anything. And if that's your attitude, you will never grow as a Christian in your understanding. I think this is especially a problem for people like me uh, who were raised in the church. There's many blessings uh, that I have as being uh, one who was raised in, in a Christian home and taught the Bible from the, the earliest ages. I don't at all uh, think that that was a bad thing. It was a wonderful thing. It was a blessing. But there is a particular temptation for somebody like me uh, because many of us, we've heard these things since we were born. Uh, we, we've, we've been taught the scriptures. We've learned theology from the time we were children. And we can start to get a real chip on our shoulder about that. Uh, like, we just have it all figured out. We have nothing more to learn. Uh, we know everything that there is to know about God and the Bible. We're right about everything. Uh, but what if we're not? What if we're wrong? What if the church tradition that you were raised in wasn't 100% right about everything? What if you've been taught some things that were incorrect? What if you've simply misunderstood something? If you're unteachable and settled in absolutely everything that you believe, you're never going to be able to correct any of the errant teaching that you may have embraced. Religious tradition often causes people to have this unteachable attitude. We get so settled in our ways and what we believe and what our parents believed and what their parents believed. And at a certain point, we're just believing things because it was passed down to us. Maybe we haven't really even examined it ourselves. We've just assumed that the things that we've been taught from others was true and that we should never question it. But what if it wasn't? What if your spiritual influences in your past, well-meaning, I'm sure, were mistaken about some things? I mean, wouldn't you want to correct those errors instead of just solidifying them and repeating them? And yet many people don't. Many people are so set in their ways that they will not hear any sort of correction as to what they believe. Uh, Jesus faced this often with the Jews in his day. He regularly tried to correct the errors of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people that they, they were teaching. Uh, those groups had elevated tradition above Scripture. They had added to what God said. And so Jesus told them, search the Scriptures. He tried to correct their false teaching. And often, they refused to listen. Here's just one example of this sort of thing. It was a doctrinal dispute, in this case, over whether or not there is life after death. Uh, the Sadducees said no, they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so Jesus tries to correct them here in Matthew 22. We'll start in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who said there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children... His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So they come up with this 
kind of crazy hypothetical situation, uh, trying to trip up Jesus and say, see, there's no resurrection. Uh, This is a gotcha question that they present to Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And here he quotes from the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. They could not believe that Jesus had just said this. He ran right into their long-held tradition and teaching, and he said, guys, you're dead wrong about all this. And all of us, no matter what our background or how, how long we've been a Christian, all of us must be open to the possibility that we are wrong about some things. And so we ought to listen to those who are trying to teach and correct us. So that's the first part of the sermon title, being teachable, being open-minded, uh, open to correction. But what about that second part? Being gullible, empty-headed, or prone to misdirection. That's the ditch on the other side of the road. The opposite danger. Yes, we ought to be open to learning new things, being corrected, uh, things that we didn't understand correctly before. We ought to be willing to change our beliefs if it is demonstrated to us that they are wrong. But we shouldn't be so open as to just go along quickly with whatever new thing we're told. So there's two opposite dangers here. One is the person who is unteachable, who never changes their mind, you know, about anything for decades. They're just closed-minded. The other problem is people who change their beliefs every other week. Uh, They get sucked into sensationalist teaching and sometimes just wacky theology. Someone comes along and says to them, hey, you've been wrong about Jesus being God. He's actually just a man. And this person goes, oh, really? I didn't know that. Uh, Someone else comes to them later and says, hey, there's not actually a a, a personal God. God is everywhere. God is everything. God is the universe. Uh, He is the energy all around us. God is the trees and the grass and the clouds and the bugs and whatever. And people go, wow, that's really something. They're gullible. They don't struggle with pride as much, which is great. They're not set in their ways and unwilling to be corrected, but they do struggle with discernment. And so this weakness makes them susceptible to false teaching. If you want a really great example of this in Scripture, look at the churches in Galatia. You remember the Apostle Paul went there during his first missionary journey back in chapter 13, and he started churches all over the region of Galatia. And a couple of years later, uh, the Judaizers come and they start telling those Christians in Galatia, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You've got to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And these new Christians in Galatia were like, oh, really? Okay, that's great. We didn't know this. They just went right along with it. And Paul writes to them in Galatians 1, and he says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says, I can't believe you guys fell for this. So quickly you've fallen into this false teaching. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so so now I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul makes very clear that not everyone who claims to be a preacher of the gospel is a true preacher of the gospel. Not everyone who comes as a Christian pastor or teacher is to be trusted. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, again, Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, You've been tricked. You've been led astray by people claiming to be preachers of the truth who are actually teaching a false gospel. So how do we avoid this problem? How can we be open to correction, but not easily led astray into false teaching? And here's the answer. Be like the Bereans. Maybe you were wondering if we were ever going to make it back to the text. Here it is. Acts 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is the perfect balance of those two extremes that we've been talking about. Uh, The Jews in Thessalonica were closed-minded. They were unteachable. But the Jews in Berea were very teachable. They were open. They were eager to hear what Paul was telling them. But they weren't gullible. They didn't just nod along and say, oh yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, They didn't take Paul's word for it. They tested what he was saying, what he was telling them against Scripture. Okay, Paul, so you're telling us that Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's the king, and he was supposed to die and rise again, and his kingdom is spiritual. He's ruling from heaven right now over his people. Okay, Uh, well, this is not how we've always understood the Messiah, but we'll search the scriptures and see if all of that is true. That's the right attitude to have. You get that mindset, and you'll be able to correct the errors of your understanding without being led into different errors. Examine what you're being told. If you hear a Bible teacher say something that you've never heard before, don't just dismiss it, and don't just accept it. Test it against the only perfect standard, which is Scripture. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the standard by which all teachings should be evaluated because of what it says there in verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is God's words. And as R.C. Sproul said, when God says something, the argument is over. So whatever a man may tell you, test it. Test it against what God has said. See if what they are saying is coming from the Bible or from their own opinion. Uh, I try each time that I teach here to be very careful to not go beyond what is written. I want to explain scripture to you in such a way that hopefully you can look down on your lap and look at your own Bible and see everything that I'm saying to you is right there in front of you. Uh, But I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. Uh, I can misunderstand something just like anybody else. So don't take my word for it. If I say something that you're not seeing in the Bible, ask me about it. That's one of the reasons we have a Wednesday night Bible study. So you all can grill me a little bit and put me on the hot seat if I get off track sometimes. It's a good and healthy question when someone says to me, hey, you said this on Sunday and I didn't really see it in the text. Uh, Where are you getting that from? Because I'm not perfect. And just because I'm your pastor, that doesn't mean that everything that I say, you have to go uh, believe and just accept it uncritically. My authority as a pastor begins and ends with what the Bible says. If I can't show it to you in scripture, it's just my opinion. Uh, All of us as Bible teachers are imperfect 
Uh, the best teachers try to constantly learn and grow in our understanding so that we can accurately preach the Bible. Uh, a lot of work goes into uh, carefully preparing sermons, probably more than you would think, from examining the passage in the original Greek to block diagramming the sentence, making sure that you understand the clauses and the connections and reading commentaries, getting background information. Uh, each sermon that I preach is pr- normally about 15 hours of work uh, went into that. But I could still be wrong about something. Uh, you may have a really good study Bible. Those are very helpful tools. Uh, but the person who made your study Bible is someone who's doing the best that they can to explain the Bible accurately. And he's probably more educated than you. He's probably spent decades of his life uh, immersed in Scripture. And so don't, don't just dismiss what he's saying. Most of the time, he's probably right, and you'll learn a lot from him. But he's not perfect. Nobody is right all the time about everything. And so with that reality, we ought to recognize that whereas the Bible is always true and trustworthy, man's understanding of what the Bible says may not be. Notice that in our text, Paul wasn't upset about their scrutiny. He wasn't bothered by the fact that these Jews in Berea were examining the scriptures to confirm if what he was saying was true. In fact, Paul commends them for it. He says they were more noble for doing this. Uh, Verse 11 again says, Those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result of this examination and testing what they were being told against the word of God, they were led into the truth. Verse 12 says, Many of them therefore believed. So by taking this approach of examining what they they were being told by Paul through the lens of the Bible, They were led into the truth. Always be open to a biblical argument, but don't just take their word for it. Even if somebody shows you one verse of the Bible and it seems to be saying what they're saying that it says, uh, examine it. Look into that closely. Uh, Come on a Wednesday night. Feel free to ask those questions. We'll discuss them as a group and search the scriptures together. And in the end, always go with whatever is clearest in the Bible where you can look at the Word of God yourself and see it right there. So in conclusion, let me uh, encourage each one of you right now to think about your own tendency. Which one are you? Gullible or unteachable? Are you prone to change your mind quickly and be led into false teaching? Or are you prone to never change your mind about something that you believe? When was the last time you changed your mind about something? If it's all the time, if it's a regular thing where you're just kind of all over the map, you might be on the gullible side. If it's been years since you've grown in your understanding about anything, you might be on the unteachable side. Know your own tendency and work against it. Uh, Last text, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Here and in the following verses, Paul explains that this concept we've talked about today is one of the primary reasons that the church exists. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes.